0: Please turn with me to 1st Peter chapter 4. We're going to be covering 1st uh, 11 verses. 1st Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. When I was a student at A&M, uh, one of my favorite profs would uh, he'd walk into the class on test day and he would say, "Today is an opportunity for you to distinguish yourselves." among your peers. And I always appreciated that optimistic attitude. The other thing that I loved about him was that he always held a review session a week before the test, and he would tell us everything that was going to be on the test, which is awesome. I mean, those are, those are the best profs. Now, he would obviously, he would cover a lot more than would actually be on the test, but, but everything that was on the test would be covered in that review session. We could ask any question that we wanted to ask, and he would answer it. And what shocked me was that there were actually students who would not go to the review session... Or they would go to the review session and then study different stuff. See, this guy told us, he said, I want you to do really well in my class. I want you to excel on my exams. I'm willing to give absolutely everyone an A. And so I'm going to tell you ahead of time, here's what you'll be tested on. Someday you and I will face a much more important exam. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And God wants us to do really well on that exam. He wants us to stand in the presence of Christ with confidence. Paul describes that exam in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether we are at home, that is, in the presence of the Lord, or absent from him, to be pleasing to him. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad or literally worthless. This has nothing to do with our eternal life. We receive eternal life the moment that we believe Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. When we do that, we receive a free gift. It is the removal of debt and the presence of life that lasts forever. We are forever reconciled to God. It's a gift. We can't earn it. As a matter of fact, Paul says it's entirely apart from works. He says in the book of Romans, to the one who does not work but instead just believes, to that one God credits righteousness. Just through faith, it's a gift. But having received this gift, we are exhorted to walk in a manner or live lives in a manner that are, that are corresponding to this wonderful gift that we've received because we will be held accountable, believers in Jesus Christ. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our eternal destiny is secure, but our lives will be evaluated. Did we live well? Did we live according to the power of God's spirit and for God's glory? And God wants us to do really well on that exam. And so he tells us ahead of time, this is what you'll be tested on, so to speak. We don't know when that test will occur, but we know that it will occur and we know what will be on the exam. A matter of fact, this, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 kind of gives a, a summary of some of the things that are most important to God. And as we've seen it throughout the book of First Peter, it's not always the things that we would say are most important. Some we understand, but some maybe not. So I want us to look at this outline that Peter gives us, this uh, pre-exam review. First Peter chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The first issue that Peter brings up is this, did we resolve to resist temptation? Did we decide ahead of time, knowing that we would be tested in this life, that we would choose to follow God, even knowing that it would cost us? Were we willing to pay the price? And as Peter does so often throughout this book, he points us first back to the example of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 1 again. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There is only one imperative in these first six verses, and it's this. Arm yourselves. Obviously a military metaphor. He says, Arm yourselves, be prepared for battle, and arm yourselves with the same purpose, or or better translation, is the same resolve that Jesus Christ had. Before time began, God commissioned his son to come to this earth and to pay for our sin. And before time began, Jesus Christ, in a sense, said, yes, I'm willing to accept that commission, knowing that it's going to cost me, knowing that I'm going to have to face temptation, I'm going to have to live on earth as mankind lives and suffer, and suffer hunger and thirst and pain and temptation and do battle with Satan. Knowing all those things are going to cost me dearly, even separation from you. Yes, I choose ahead of time to walk down that path. Peter says, arm yourselves also with the same resolve. Notice verse 1 again. Let me retranslate this for you. Make, help it make a little better sense. He says, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, that is, in his earthly life, He suffered. Arm yourselves also with the same resolve that is because he who suffered that is Jesus okay that should be a capital A because he who suffered Jesus in his earthly life has put sin behind him He made a resolve ahead of time that when faced with temptation he would say no to that and yes to the will of God even though it would cost him I mean, Think about the life of Christ Peter is saying How did he face temptation The first and most obvious example is when Jesus is in the wilderness. And why was he in the wilderness? Because God's spirit sent him to the wilderness to test him. Because God tests his servants. One of the things you'll notice as you read the book of Matthew is that the life of Jesus Christ parallels the life of the nation of Israel. Israel was taken into the wilderness. Why? To be tested by God. God rescued them out of Egypt. But then as they entered into the wilderness, all of that unleavened bread that they had baked ran out. And they were without food and they were without water. Why? Because God was testing them. He was testing their hearts. And they went into the wilderness and they were hungry and they were thirsty. And what happened? They failed the test. They grumbled and they complained and they moaned and they whined and they said we would be better off in slavery again. It'd be better to be slaves and have our bellies filled. God tests his servants. God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to go to the mount called Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice your only son. We're told in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, God did it to test Abraham. God tested Jesus. He took him into the wilderness to be tested. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was really hungry. I don't know if any of you have ever fasted 40 days. I've never fasted 40 days. It's not even like I'm one of my life's spiritual goals to try it. I've had friends who've done it, and I'm impressed. Um, I don't want to run a marathon either. I, you know, I miss lunch, and I'm hungry and grumpy. I really, you know, I am. My, my wife tells me so. 40 days, can you imagine? Yeah, he was hungry. Jesus was really, really hungry. And then Satan comes and he tests him at the point of his hunger. He says, I know you're hungry. Make the stones into bread. And Jesus had the power to do so. And he had a a real and legitimate appetite. He was hungry. But he said, no, that is not God's plan for me. God's plan for me is to continue in my hunger. Wow. Wow. God's plan for me is to continue to suffer and to wait just for his provision, because man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, there's something more valuable to me than filling my belly with food, and that is to do the will of God. Wow. So he said no to himself, then Satan took him up onto the pinnacle of the temple and and if we understand that correctly, he is on the temple mount. He's on the platform, not on the building itself. And down below is this area. It's called the Tyrapean Valley. It's the valley that runs north-south, right through the middle of the city. And in that valley is the central marketplace. It's filled with people. And Satan says, jump into the crowd. Because when you jump, God will send his angels and they will pick you up and it will be really obvious that you're the Messiah and you won't have to spend three years on this earth wandering around, living outdoors many nights and suffering hunger and thirst with a rock for your pillow, preaching to people who will love you and then betray you. You can forego all of that and just prove right now that you're Messiah. And Jesus says, no, because it's not the will of God for my life. And Satan gives him one more temptation. He says, you know, the kingdoms of the earth right now, they're in my possession. And you know and I know that it's God's will that all things be ruled over by you. You can have it now. I will give it to you right now. And all that you have to do is just bend the knee and worship me. You can have the crown and avoid the cross, Jesus. You don't have to go through all of that physical suffering and separation from your Father. I'll give you this king, the kingdom right now. The Father is going to make you suffer before you get it, but I'll give it to you for free. Just bend and worship me. And Jesus says no. Even though he knew it would be a struggle and he knew it would be difficult, and you recall later as he's in the garden, as Lance just read, he prayed, God, is there another way that I can have the kingdom and establish your kingdom on earth, forgive sins and do all this apart from the suffering. That's what I want, but I want something even more. I want your will. Peter says, arm yourselves also with exactly the same resolve. Remember even shortly after Jesus prayed, as his betrayer came and Judas came and kissed him to betray him, one of his more loyal followers pulled out a sword to defend Jesus took off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers, and Jesus says, no, put away your sword. Don't you realize that I could rescue myself from this suffering right now? I have legions, thousands of angels at my disposal. They could have carried me up and proven that I'm God's Messiah. They could come rescue me now and prove that I'm God's Messiah. But God's will for me is the cross. Put away your sword. Peter says, choose ahead of time, knowing that you will be tested. Because God tests his servants to see if their hearts are fully devoted to him. Do we love God more than we love anything in this world? Peter says, follow the example of Christ. Resolve to follow the example of Christ, knowing that it will cost you. Look at verse 3. It says, because the time already passed. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. When you choose to live differently from the world, Peter says you will suffer for it. You're going to suffer for it. I don't know if you noticed, but in the beginning of verse 3, Peter says, the time already passed is sufficient for you. That's sarcasm. (laughs) Uh, Peter's being exceedingly sarcastic. He says, you know, I think you had just about enough time to be drunk and sexually immoral. Don't you think you had enough time doing that already? You know, before you trusted Christ and believed in him, didn't you? Wasn't that enough? That was probably enough. You probably don't need to go back into that. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have lived like a fool. And he goes on and he lists the specific set of sins, all that have to do with uh, physical excess. Okay, literally a, a, a flood of excess. It's a flood of excess. You Note know, when the New Testament writers are talking to Christians about their relationships with Christians, what do they usually talk about? Talk about uh, unity. Love one another. Stop being mean. Don't say nasty things to each other. Forgive, all these kind of things. Now, in relationship to the world, Peter says, there's enough time that you have spent pursuing the value system of the world. This is what the Greek and Roman cultures valued. Okay, this fit with their worldview. Get all the pleasure that you can right now. And you're a fool if you don't. And so when they saw Christians turning away from all the pleasures of the world, it made absolutely no sense to them. And so they literally, as Peter says, they blasphemed against them. They maligned them. You're, you're foolish. You're ridiculous. You're an idiot. You know, this, is, this passage is, is a great application for college students. Did <laughs> you live in a time in life where people are saying to you, gosh, man, you only go through college once. Enjoy. This is the time to feed your flesh, really, because you can grow up later, right? You're going to have to be mature later. You get a job, then you can't, you're not going to be able to do all these things. And really, you can do it with hardly any accountability. You're away from your parents, nobody's watching. Now's the time, go for it. And when you choose as a Christian to say no to those things, you're saying no to lust and choose to love. You're going to say no to partying, instead go to a prayer meeting. Are you kidding? You are missing out. The world literally thinks that you are missing out. And so they malign you. They malign you. Notice again, verse 4. It says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. You've stopped running with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they malign you. They're drowning in their sin, and they're surprised that you refuse to get back into the water with them. And so you're a fool. You know, the culture in Peter's day really is not that different from the culture in our day. If you watch a sitcom, it's only 30 minutes long, right? And in 30 minutes, there's only enough time to show all the pleasure of sin. And then the show has to be over and we don't have time to talk about the consequences, right? And if there is a person on the show who's trying to live well and wisely, to live righteously, that person... Is portrayed as an idiot. Is it worthwhile to follow God even though it will cost you? Look at verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says, Yeah, it is, because all people will be accountable to God. God will vindicate the lifestyle of those who choose to live righteously. God will judge the living and the dead. That is, all people will be accountable before God. This went directly contrary to the Greek and Roman philosophy of life. They understood the afterlife as something fairly vague but unpleasant. And everyone would go to the same place. And it really didn't matter if you lived righteously or unrighteously. You'd still go to the same place. Those who were a little better than others would have it a little better off in the afterlife. So the basic idea was, get all the pleasure you can and hurt as few people as possible. Not dissimilar to North American culture. Get all the pleasure you can, hurt as few people as possible, live a little better than most, and in the end, everything will work out for you. And Peter says, no, we all must give an account But even the Apostle Paul, he affirms this philosophy. He says, you know, they're right if there is no resurrection. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then there is no accountability. Therefore, how should we live? Eat more than you need. Drink more than you need. Be merry. Pretend it doesn't matter because tomorrow we die. Assuming there is no accountability. But there is. Every person will give an account for the way that they have lived before God. Non-believers and believers. And Peter is specifically addressing this to believers. He's saying, choose ahead of time, knowing that you will be tested by temptation. Will you follow the path of Jesus Christ? Christians know we will be tested because God wants us to face temptation and face it like Christ did and live differently. That's the first question Peter asked. Second, did we align our lives with God's purposes through prayer? Verse 7 it says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is near. It's approaching. It could happen at any moment. Jesus Christ could return. And when he returns and he raptures his church, I think that that's the moment when the judgment seat of Christ occurs for believers. Our lives are evaluated. Will we be prepared? Will we be confident? Will we stand before Jesus Christ and say, yeah, we chose to live well. Well, Peter says, prayer is one of the things that prepares you for that moment. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Pay attention. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Because Prayer fundamentally is what aligns us with God's purpose for our lives. Remember, if you think about Peter's life, there were uh, at least two occasions that were recorded when Jesus taught Peter about prayer. Uh, The first was when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? You pray so differently. Jesus says, yeah, I can. And this is how you need to pray. Don't, Don't repeat my words because that would be meaningless repetition, but let me give you a pattern. Here are the things that are most important in prayer. Start with this. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be be hallowed, your reputation set apart. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I align myself with your purpose here on earth. Your kingdom come. No one resists your will in heaven. May it be so on earth and let me live for that priority. And certainly we ask for our own needs to be met in prayer our daily bread so to speak but that comes later first in prayer we align ourselves with the purposes of God second time that Peter was taught about prayer is when he was in the garden with Jesus remember Jesus took three men he took Peter and James and John at least in part so that they would be with him he'd have his best friends close in his moment of trial but also to teach them how to do spiritual warfare Because Jesus knew that he was going to depart out of the world and send his spirit. And these 11 men would have to carry on the will of God on earth. And so he said, I want you to stay here and I want you to watch and pray. And that word for watch, actually, it's Gregoreo in Greek. That's where my middle name comes from. My parents gave it to me specifically. It means pay attention. Okay, (laughs) Pay attention. Peter, James, John, guess what? Satan is about to come and he's going to attack and attack and attack me. Oh, and Peter, by the way, he is, he's asked permission and God's granted to sift you like wheat, brother. Man, you are going to get hammered. And the only way that you're going to su- survive this and bounce back is stay awake, pay attention. What happens? Jesus goes away and they fall asleep because they're tired. Legitimate physical need, right? Right. But he says, no, not now. Don't sleep now. No matter how tired you are, don't fall asleep, guys. I need you, and you need to stay awake. And he goes away and three times, and every time, man, they pass out, they fall asleep. And guess what? They fail the test. Because they were not alert in prayer. Come on, John, wake up. We're encouraging each other, exhorting one another, praying with one another. Stay awake, pay attention. Jesus just said we're going to be tempted and tested. We need to pass the test. Let's band together, let's pray, let's align our lives with the purposes of God. And so Peter says, pay attention and pray. He's going to come back to the subject again. 1 Peter chapter 5, he's going to talk about Satan attacking us like a roaring lion. He's going to use the same terminology. He's going to say, be watchful, pray, stay alert, be vigilant. Because we will be tested in this life. We will be tested someday. And the way that we pass that test is stay alert in prayer. Third, oh, I was going to give you Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. It says, Peter, Paul says, with all prayer and petition... Pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You know, what do you think Paul's emphasizing? All, all, all. This is really a priority. This is how you do warfare. Paul actually in this warfare section gives two weapons. One is prayer and the other is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Okay. Third, did we fervently love one another? I mean, in chapter four and verse eight, above all, Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. I hope that kind of rings a bell with you. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 22, Peter wrote, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Same word, fervent in love, that means to be, uh, to be stretching out, to be intense in the way that you love one another. Because the first and foremost hallmark of those who follow Christ is the way that we relate to one another. Love one another fervently, sacrificially. Because when we are being tested and being tempted, what is the temptation? To think just about ourselves. Peter says, not only will you fail, but those around you will fail when you're tested if you don't stop and look outward. How can you encourage and support and embrace one another, fervently love one another? And then he says something interesting, because love covers over a multitude of sins. How does it do that? In the great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So when I'm sinned against, I choose not to pick it up. God, convict that person. God bring justice to that person, but I choose not to pick it up. Just like Jesus on the cross, who after being beaten and spikes driven through his hands, he looks down, he says, Father, forgive them, I trust you, Father. Forgive them. Love doesn't pick up the grievance. I remember one of our elders telling me years ago, he said, you know, in my lifetime, Brian, I have noticed that 95% of the sins against me I shouldn't even address. You shouldn't even pick them up. Love covers over a multitude of sins also because love is too busy often to worry about all the offenses against it. Again, Paul put it like this in Galatians. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Commandment after commandment after commandment after commandment is summed up in a really simple statement. Stop thinking about yourself and think about others. And then he gives a really specific application in verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be hospitable. That is, uh, literally, love strangers, which is really important in the early church because there were no buildings for church. If they wanted to have a church, everybody had to come into the home. And they had to crowd in because they lived in uh, houses that were really small. Most people in Rome lived in basically like one to two-room apartment buildings that means people are going to be worshiping in your bedroom and worshiping in your kitchen. And do so without grumbling. I wish these people would get out of my kitchen. They're messing up our room. Traveling uh, preachers and teachers and prophets would come through and there was nowhere for them to stay. And so the church was told, love strangers. Okay, be hospitable. There was uh, no Holiday and Express. The inns along the way were really shady places. And so Christians were told, love strangers. When Christians come through, let them know that there's a Christian here. Open your home. Give them your bed. Sleep on the floor. As the church was established, the leadership was told, if you want to have the highest level of spiritual authority in the church, if you want to be an elder, one of the qualifications is you have to love strangers. Hospitality is not a secondary gift that people have. It's primary because life change really happens most powerfully in the home when we open up our homes and we, we share our table, we share our food. We let people enter into our lives, literally. So many times when I've talked to folks about their spiritual gifts, they'll say, you know, but I, I don't have any, I don't, I don't teach or preach or lead worship, I don't do those those kind of gifts, the only thing that I do, I just, I just like having people into my home. And I want to say, wow, man, that's, that's maybe one of the greatest gifts. It doesn't say uh, that, you know, that an elder needs to lead worship. But it does say that an elder and his family need to love strangers. Because that's where life change happens. It's not a secondary gift. Remember, what we're talking about this morning is, what does God value Right? Because we may all on this earth applaud certain gifts and certain talents and certain behaviors, but who cares? When we stand before Jesus Christ, what does he say is important? And really God's value system is entirely contrary to the world. He says, you know, if someone gave a cup of water to one of the least of these, to one who couldn't give anything in return and just gave a cup of water out of a sincere heart, man, that makes God... So happy. And that widow who's passing through the temple and she puts in two tiny copper coins, Jesus says, she gave so much more than the rich man. And the disciples say, wait, but he gave more. No, Jesus says, no, she gave more. But he gave more. No, she gave more in my economy because I don't need your money, but she gave out of her poverty. She gave from her heart because God is concerned with motives God doesn't care at all about what we think is big and flashy and important he doesn't care at all he doesn't care what what is seen on the surface he cares what's happening in the heart in the private place he says when you pray pray in private when you fast fast in private when you give give in private these are the things that are, are first and foremost and most important to the Lord a final exhortation that Peter gives, verse 10. It says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, are you living for this? That Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified in your lives. That you would use all of these these stewardships that God has given you. Literally, these, uh, these are manifestations of grace. They're graces. God has put his favor upon you and given you these things. Sometimes it's a talent or a skill. Sometimes it's financial resources or physical resources. Have you used all of these to the honor and the glory of God, no matter what they are? Because he's gifted each person and each person differently. And so when we're standing before God's evaluation, it won't matter what someone else gave or what someone else did because they weren't given the same set of gifts and responsibilities and stewardships as you or as I. It'll just be what did you do with what God provided for you? And did you use those things for your own pleasure or did you use those to spread the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ throughout the earth? As we close, let me read to you one last passage. It's from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. The example of Moses, verse 24. It says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking for the reward. He said no to all the privilege that could have been his as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And instead, he chose to identify himself with the people of God that brought persecution upon him and suffering on him. But he resolved ahead of time that he would look to the reward that God would provide. And that is wisdom. As Moses would write later, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. As we close in prayer... I'd like for each of us just to go before the Lord and and ask ourselves the question, are we ready? Are we prepared for that day when we stand before Jesus Christ and he evaluates our lives? Do we understand the things that God values most? And are we living for those things? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have the courage to rearrange our lives according to the things that you value most. I pray that we would have the wisdom to say no to the the passing pleasures of sin that satisfy for a moment. I pray that we would have the wisdom to look to the future and to live for that day when we stand before your son Jesus. I pray that we would be prepared for that day so that we could come before him with, with boldness and confidence that we've chosen well and lived according to the things that last forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you.